telling these stories. I'm not forcing myself to tell these stories because I'm, I'm Mexican-American. I'm telling these stories because there's something there. Hello and welcome everyone to Straight Ahead, an animation podcast where we spotlight rising BIPOC artists who are the future voices of the animation industry. I'm Raymond Ozalanda, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yuki Okamura Wong, the other half of our whole host. Our guest this week is Miguel Baltazar. He is a story artist currently based in Anaheim, California. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, so thank you guys for having me. Uh, I really appreciate you guys, uh, yeah. you know, giving me the platform. Thank you for being uh, on. Yeah, no, thank you. So as, you know, Yuki mentioned, uh, I reside in Anaheim, California, born and raised in Anaheim. Uh, I am a Latino uh, storyboard uh, artist. Uh, currently, I am a storyboard revisionist at Netflix Animation Studios on an unannounced project. So the way we like to start off uh, straight ahead is by playing a little game called In Between. We are going to give you two similar choices and you have to choose in between the two of them and then let us know why. Okay. Okay. Alrighty. <laughs> it's just like a, it's cool. like a little icebreaker. So like, no. Oh, perfect. Yeah, no worries. All right, go ahead, Ray. All right. Uh, so who looks better in orange? Goku from Dragon Ball Z or Naruto from Naruto? <laughs> Goku, for sure. And <laughs> again, I, again I, 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 I think like Goku just looks way better. It complements his, his physique. And then also when he goes Super Saiyan, it's just, I don't know, it just works so well. The, the color palette's very harmonious. Um, and then also, I don't really watch Naruto, so I can't really speak for Naruto. <laughs> my, my sister could. She's a big Naruto fan. Um, but yeah, I, I Goku 100%. Over 9,000. Dude, hell yeah. Nice, nice. <laughs> well, it's funny because like when, when we were like picking out the questions, Ray was like, I'm going to ask him this one. And I was like, are oh, you yeah. sure? Like, we don't know who's like an anime fan or whatever. He's like, no, I'm pretty sure. Like most, most Mexican, most Latin like dudes. Like, I know, there's a thing. No, I, no, I, for I'll real, see. it is. Yeah. Dude, no, Dragon Ball is so huge in Mexico. Oh, dude, for real. Like, I remember when I was... A quick aside, when I was in Mexico as a little kid, uh, my cousin who was older than me, like, he had, like, a like a Sega set, and, like, he had, like, all these discs, and he had a Dragon Ball Z video game. That was the first thing he pulled out. And also, when I was in elementary school, everyone would be talking about, hey, did you see Dragon Ball Z on, on Toonami on Friday? And we'd just be talking about Toonami all the time. Um, and my brother and I were just so into it. Like, it was just so different. Like, the fact that it was, like, I think the first serialized show we saw... I don't know. Mm-hmm. Something about it just appealed to us little little Latino kids. I don't know why. It's just so cool. It's so different, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. Like, yeah. we've never seen anything so beautiful. <laughs> no, for sure. Dude, Dragon Ball's yeah, like, awesome. Again, I, oh, it's yeah. so, Sometimes when you're a kid, favorite. you just want to see dudes screaming and punching each other for, like, 30 that's minutes. That's what it was. And the way they punch each other and the way they go Super Saiyan, it was just, like, the coolest thing ever. It's just one of those yes. things you just can't ever forget. And the video games are pretty yeah. dope, too. I gotta mm-hmm. say. Oh, no, the biggest, I would play that with my cousins all the oh time. Yeah, I, yeah, I got into it because, like, my dad was a big fan of, like, Dragon Ball. So when he oh, saw seriously? that it was on Toonami. Oh. Yeah, so he, because he watched it when he was in high school. So when it was on Toonami, oh, he said he was, he would sit me down and we watch it together. Damn, that's a good dad. Like, my parents, oh. like, they both came from Mexico. So they didn't really know any sort of, like, mainstream, like, animation kind of thing. So remember then I just kind of discovered it on TV. So that's cool to hear that your parents would be like, hey, mm-hmm. you got to watch this. Fine. That's, that sounds good Since to me. Down, I can't believe you, t- like, indoctrinated <laughs> you, you into anime. 
That's so dope. <laughs> yeah. So dope. I never knew that either. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'm going to ask one last one. Uh, who would win in a fight? Poe from Kung Fu Panda or oh. Mr. Incredible from The Incredibles? Oh, okay. Now, this is actually the hardest question because I... I'm a Kung Fu Panda stan, but then I'm yeah. also a Mr. Incredible stan, but I got to go with Mr. Incredible because <gasps> I'm trying not to like base it off of nostalgia, but I have to because Mr. Incredible, like he's, he's a good guy. He's really powerful, has super strength. As great as Poe is, I feel like his clumsiness would, would, would get in the way of, of him winning the fight. Like Mr. Incredible has the composure. He has to think, of, he has to think of his family. Um, so he has a lot more writing on the fight. And also, Mr. Uh, the Incredibles was the first Pixar movie I ever saw in theaters. So, again, a lot of these answers are weighed in by how much they mean to me and how much I remember them even now. That's good. So, I mean, like, there's literally dude, no, there's good, literally good no stakes. There's no stats to this. But that's really, interesting. I, I, I kind of loaded this one because I was like, oh, he worked on uh, Kung Fu Panda. Exactly. I, yeah. I, 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 I knew why you guys were asking the question. <laughs> yeah. That was a great one, honestly, because I'm like, oh, I can't. Like, I love them both, but I got to go with Mr. Incredible. All right, great yeah, answer. It's just a fun game, but it's 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 also loaded questions. <laughs> honestly, no, I love them. These are phenomenal questions. This is, this is such a great way to start a podcast. I don't think I've ever heard a podcast where you guys start a game like that. This That's so good. I love it. I love it. I, right. I could go oh, with it a thousand much. percent. <laughs> Over a thousand. So cool. Yes, over yes, 9,000! Over 9,000! <laughs> over 9,000! Let's get into this a little bit more. Tell us about your job as a story revisionist at Netflix. All right, that's a good question. So let me just like preface this by like explaining what a storyboard revisionist is, or even like yeah, what please. storyboarding yes. is in general. Mm-hmm. Yes, please and, do. Because uh, a lot of times when I tell people what it is, they're like, what is that? Mm-hmm. And I've always tried to like figure out like the best way of kind of describing it, either through like analogies or whatever. I still haven't figured it out because it's sometimes it's, I feel like you just got to really go in depth into it. But basically like storyboarding is kind of like the blueprint of what an animation or like an animated movie or what a live action would be. People have seen them before, probably like in the behind the scenes or kind of like in passing, but really it's like you get the script, which is just like a bunch of words uh, on stacks of paper. And then from there, the story artists translate that into the actual images. In this case, like the blueprint of what the movie would actually look like visually. So that applies to animation, that applies to live action, but mainly to animation, because again, with animation, you got to start from scratch. So basically, everything about that world doesn't exist until someone comes up with it. And, and the first person to do that is the story artist. And that's, you know, primarily a feature. When it comes to TV animation, that's, that's a whole different beast. So there's feature animation and then TV animation. So story artists in feature animation, they kind of just, you know, do their thing. They work on their sequences. They basically come up with how the movie might look and stuff like that. In TV animation, it's it's similar where you have the story artist taking the scripts, you know, uh, drawing out the sequences. Uh, but then because of how quick TV animation is in terms of the scheduling, uh, a lot of times the story artists can't really finish and clean up their, their sequences. So a lot of times their drawings may be really rough. And one thing people should know is that, you know, a lot of the animation, the actual animation of the show is outsourced to different overseas, to different countries, such as India, Korea, Japan, um, I think like the Philippines, um, yeah. Taiwan, any any other, you know, uh, countries like overseas. 
So for TV animation, they have to really make sure that their storyboard drawings really match what the animation is going to be. A lot of times there's overcompensation, but that's definitely another discussion. And so my point is that there in lies the the revisionist. So there's a storyboard revisionist who comes in after the story artist has completed their whatever, you know, seven pages of script into drawings. And from there, the director works with, with us, the revisionist, to make sure that we clean up any drawings that uh, need to be cleaned up or redoing certain sequences. Because as you can tell, like, or as you may notice that, like, the story artists take, they basically have very little time to complete their stuff. So a lot of times they may have to rush through things. And when you look back at what their, what their drawings were, uh, it's very tough to kind of distinguish what they, they did because they drew so fast. So for us, we have to kind of like clarify things and uh, make stuff look pretty here and there. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they're focusing more on like, okay, how is this? How is the story being told? Like exactly, uh, yeah. film language wise, like okay, like they're focusing on the shots, they're focusing on staging, mm-hmm. they're making sure that the story is coming across first and foremost. And then oftentimes it's like they might not always have a chance to make the prettiest drawing to to do a thing. But yeah, because on on their end is that on a story level, they're trying to make sure that their their boards are working. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So they they're focusing on on the general picture of of what the sequence is. So they're focusing on mm-hmm. composition. Uh, they're reading the script multiple times, going through the story, making sure that there's a, that the story dictates what the, what shots they're going to compose. Because mm-hmm. it's not just oh, putting camera here and then putting camera here. It's like their, their job is to really I, to really think. You know how uh, does it, how does it visually stitch together to makes, tell the story visually exactly? Because at the end of the day, that's what they're being evaluated on. Not so much their drawings, but more so on does the story make sense? And if you were to watch just as a casual viewer. Uh, does it flow well, you know? Because uh, the mm-hmm. biggest thing is clarity, and that's the thing that storyboarders have to focus on. And so do revisionists, but our job as revisionists is kind of go in and kind of like soak in what the story artist has done. Um, and then we kind of function more on like a micro level where we have to like clean stuff up and, you know. So we're not thinking about the bigger picture, but we're kind of, our job is there to kind of dictate how we're going to be thinking once we move up. Because that's eventually the goal is for us to move up as revisionists into story art. And then from there, be the ones mm-hmm. who think about the general picture. Um, but I had to preface that because people, I mean, the thing is that animation, like the pipeline isn't really as mainstream. The info isn't as mainstream as, as one as one would like because a lot of times people don't really know what the ins and outs are mm-hmm. of animation. I think story mm-hmm. is like one of the most important uh, departments because we're the, we're the first ones to go in and actually try to figure out how the episode's going to be. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, like story mm-hmm. artists' jobs are really expanding. Like mm-hmm. uh, studios often will ask a lot of them. I think because yes. um, on certain productions, like if it's a board-driven show, like the story artist might even be in charge of like initial character designs or like putting in like props and things like that. And they really like dictate coming a up, lot coming of up with what, dialogue. Yeah, a, a, a lot of what the show will end up looking like and. Um, I think it is a lot of pressure on the story artists, but that's sort of how things are evolving is more like uh, experienced story artists kind of like are able to bring those skills to the table. So, mm-hmm. And it even varies whether you're a revisionist on or a board artist on a 3D show or a 2D show. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Have you have you been mainly been a revisionist on 3D shows or have you been able to do a little bit of both? That's a good question. So the first show that was on was Boss Baby as an artist, like Boss Baby back in business. That was the first 3D mm-hmm. show that I was on as a revisionist. 
And then when I went over to Netflix, um, I was on a 2D show called Inside Job, which is um, still in production. It's been announced. Um, and that was my first 2D show. And then now the uh, other show that I'm on, which is unannounced, it's, it's also 2D as well. So I have dabbled in both. On Boss Baby, I was there for like over a year. But on these other two productions, I've been there a couple months. But I've already learned a lot on how to do 2D. And and also the differences are like in 2D, you have to be kind of more on model. Just because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the animators overseas are going to take those drawings and really just kind of use that as like the blueprint for the animation. So the drawings have to kind of really make sense. Whereas in 3D, there's a lot more flexibility because you can draw however you want basically because... The 3D models already exist, and at the end of the day, the animators are just going to take those models and rig the model to the poses that you drew. So mm-hmm. that's the thing where I had an easier time on Boss from that perspective, um, but also had an easier time through 2D because I actually get a chance to like draw out the characters and really like you know finesse the posing and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, so I have both, both, both have their yeah both have their interesting challenges and pros because I'm currently a revisionist on. A 3d show mm-hmm. and for us like my revisionist director she stresses more on making sure that the poses are hooking up from shot to shot yeah she's not super worried about like making a perfect clean drawing as long as it's clear mm-hmm. she's more on the uh push the acting make yeah. sure that the poses are hooking up because she's like super like like yeah like this is a blueprint for overseas if a char- yeah. if we have a character in one position in one shot and then we cut to the next shot and they're in a different position that's confusing. We got to make mm-hmm. sure that we're making it as easy for them as yeah. possible. And also the other thing too, is that she, we're also focusing to make sure that all, cause yeah, the models are there, but because the models are there, uh, we're also focusing, are these characters being drawn into proportion of each other? Yeah. The scale. Uh huh. So we're constantly double checking scale. Cause again, like not that the borders don't care. It's just, they have yeah. to work so much faster. Yeah. They have so much other things to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes like, oh damn this character is like a head taller than this character but he's drawing they're the same height here and so yeah. we need to like fix that we're, we're basically like the proofreaders of like an author you know what i mean like <laughs> so like if, if, if an author did have a proofreader like themselves to, to go over stuff because for the most part you proofread your own stuff but like we're basically we're really the ones to proofread and make sure that what they did is accurate to true it stays true like scale is a big thing and this is a great important thing to talk about because these are the specifics that people are going to eventually have to know, you know, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of it factors into budgeting. And then because of that, because of the animation, the animators being new overseas, a lot of times uh, the boards have to kind of uh, overcompensate and try to make sure that they're as clear as possible because mm-hmm. with storyboarding, the ideas are there and, and, and they can be a lot looser with stuff. But in TV animation, like we can't really afford that luxury of being super loose. So a lot mm-hmm. of times uh, we have to make sure that our boards are extremely, extremely clear. And that goes for even just working on personal stuff. Like you have to make sure that what you're, what you're trying to tell and show with your story is extremely clear. And that's something that I'm trying to focus on with my job currently now at Netflix, but also at DreamWorks too. Like trying to find the best way to be clear with what I'm trying to communicate, you know? Totally. Mm-hmm. So honestly, you have so much experience in your short period of time that you have already accumulated. Uh-huh. How did your experience as a production intern at DreamWorks TV differ from when you got your first industry job as a production assistant working on Kung Fu Panda, The Pause of Destiny? So again, it's it's honestly kind of like night and day with the 
with how these experiences differ as a production intern, the fact that you're still in school during that time as a as a, as any intern, you know, we, of course you apply for an internship and then you gain the experience at the company you want to intern at while you're still in school. So for me, there wasn't as much there, there weren't as much stakes involved in trying to be an intern. It's more so like trying to be, you know, being nice to people, being genuine, you know, um, really just kind of soaking in all the information. Uh, so when it came to like the day to day stuff, um, uh, as an intern, like there, there wasn't really too much to like really be worried about. Cause for the most part, like as an intern, you just come in and you're just trying to like soak in all the information, whatever assignments are given by your production. Um, and also, I'll be more specific. When I was a production intern, I interned on the same show, Kung Fu Panda, as well, my first semester when I started, as well as on another cool. team. So, And I was only there two days a week, so I wasn't really there that much. So that kind of just was like a supplemental thing for me, but wasn't anything that kind of like had a lot of stakes to it, you know? It's like I showed up, you know, to, to my internship. Uh, I learned a lot. I spoke to a lot of people. When it came to like assignments and stuff like that, it wasn't it wasn't too crazy. It was just more like, hey, here's how a production person would do this. Uh, hey, how about you organize these files? Hey, how about you go, uh, you know, make sure that everyone's computers are up to date, blah, 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 you know? And it was just there to, to give me a preview of what it would be like to be a production assistant. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was more fun. Quite honestly, as an intern, mm-hmm. because of course you're like you don't you, you don't have like that. You have the luxury of just kind of going back to school and just worrying about that, and then going back to your internship, and then letting everyone else kind of take care of their jobs. Whereas when I got my production assistant job, that was different. I wasn't an intern anymore. I was pretty much the guy that you know was part of the production, and so there was a lot more at stake because what I did actually would affect the actual production of the show. Whereas as an intern, you're like, oh, hey, this guy, you know, you did well here, you know, we'll take care of, you know what I mean? At the end of the day, you knew that they were going to take care of their stuff because that, that's, it mattered to them more. Whereas for me, what mattered to me was speaking to as many people as possible, uh, speaking to a lot of, you know, storyboard people, directors, just to get an idea of what storyboarding actually is like in the industry. Whereas now, uh, my main focus is to make sure that the artists are on schedule with their assignments, making sure that all the files that I open up in the morning are correct. I download them properly, send them off to the CG artists uh, in our production, and then check emails, communicate with uh, the hub team, which is a department that focuses on all aspects of the 3D animated shows at DreamWorks. Um, and so I'm just there making sure that uh, the machine is running, you know, we're like the factory mm-hmm, workers mm-hmm. making sure that, Hey, you know, are you on schedule? Hey, we got to go to this meeting. We got to take notes. It was a lot more stressful, honestly, because I was still kind of like trying to gain my confidence. And also mm-hmm. because I come from a Latino background, there's this whole idea of like, I gotta, you know, I gotta really like start from scratch and like really earn my way up there. So, uh, for me, it's like, mm-hmm. I just gotta focus on my job, you know, head down and just kind of, you know, go running. Um, and so a lot of times, like for me to ask certain things of people, I'm like, oh shit, like, will they get mad? What do they see me as, you know what I mean? Like there's that complex of like, I'm only the production assistant. I've only been here a couple weeks, you know, like I felt like I hadn't earned mm-hmm. my worth, but really it's like, that's my job is to like kind of bug people and be like, Hey, uh, will you be able to finish on this day? You know, before, for some reason I'd be nervous yeah. to ask that because I thought be like, Oh, you're asking me that. But that was just me coming up with these scenarios in my head because of my anxiety Right. Um, so that was kind of the difference yeah. was that it wasn't really as fun. Of course, it was a job, you know, it was, it was, I enjoyed it because I really enjoyed my crew, but it, it was very different because now like what I was, what I would be doing on the show really mattered, you know? So that's the difference. And it's just kind of mentally preparing for that. Cause as an intern, you're kind of going through the honeymoon phase of everything. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, yeah, yeah. this is the industry. Wow. Yeah, and you're like, I'm oh, saying- I'm here. <laughs> I, I'm like exactly. in the office. There are people like, oh, we're exactly. making the cartoon or whatever. Wow, the cartoons are happening. <laughs> yeah. This is the cartoon factory. Wow, incredible. Yeah. And then um, it's still fun. Obviously, like, like there, mm-hmm. there's still that sense of wonder. But then, of course, once you actually are in the industry, once you're a part of that machine, um, the stakes are just a lot higher, you know. You got yeah. you, you gotta you gotta accept the fact that you're gonna make mistakes. Things are gonna happen. You're gonna experience the you know the pros and cons of, of the production, um, and it's just accepting that. Yeah, looking so looking at your resume, you've been uh, you've bounced around from a lot of different revisionist jobs in like your short span of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, some as short as a month. Can you talk about uh, how that's been for you from going from one job to the next? Absolutely. That's a really good question. Um, thankfully for me, it hasn't really been that crazy, but, and it all has to do with like just being genuine and, and using that as like a form of networking. I know for a lot of uh, up and comers, like people say networking, networking, that's the key. But really, people don't explain that there's a component to it where you have to be genuine about how you network. You're not just talking to somebody oh, totally. just to get something out of it, you know? If you want to really talk to an artist that you know you meet at a convention or you you know you've looked up to, you want to be genuine about what you want, right? It's like, hey, uh, 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 can I can I get a job? It's like, no, like you know, like a lot of that starts from just <laughs> talking to them and getting to know them on a personal level and then seeing if you can vibe with them, um, and that that's kind of how my experience has been from going from one job to the next. Um, of course, when I was a production assistant on Kung Fu Panda, I was talking to other people, like getting to, you know, see what they do on a day to day, like two artists that really, that, that, that really meant a lot to me at the time that I met, um, were Kennedy Terrell, who's I think currently on Netflix as well. She was at DreamWorks, uh, as a story artist at the time and Heather Gregerson, who was also a revisionist. I would meet with them and just kind of get their advice on like how to move up and stuff like that. Cause they were both actually production interns as well as production oh, assistants prior to Heather had, Heather's an alumni from our yeah, school. Yeah. I was going to say, well, I think Heather. Yeah, right. yeah, she, yeah. she went to San Jose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. San Jose. So, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was yeah. like, that name sounds so familiar. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Awesome. Yeah. She went to San Jose uh, state and um, she was like one of the first people I met. And that's why I bring up the, the, the preface of networking because for me, like that was what I was doing. I was networking, but like really I was just meeting somebody and like talking to them and being like, Hey, I'm in this situation. Like, I know you kind of shared a similar experience. Like what can you do? You know, it's just like listening mm-hmm. to people. That's the key. And so I say that because when I, you know, moved up to revisions, I had, I got that job through uh, networking with uh, one of the directors on Kung Fu Panda, Dan Forgione, who he's the guy who basically gave me the job as a revisionist. He looked at my stuff. I took the test, story test for Boss Baby. And he saw something in me and I was only five months out of school. And so uh, for me, I'm going to try not to get emotional because like this, of course, for me, like I don't, I don't take this stuff for granted. So he gave me the job no, for as sure. a revisionist. And so like for, for me, that was kind of pretty seamless, but honestly, I, it really took a lot of work, you know? And so I worked for about over a year. And also during that time, uh, I had already gotten to know one of the intern uh, people that I'd met, uh, Crystal Ang. She was, she worked in the internship department where like I got to meet her while I was an intern. And by the time I was about to wrap up, I was going to go on a bit of a hiatus and then come back for season three because currently I was working on season two. Um, and so I came back for season three and of course you guys know, I think it was like, I, I was only there for three weeks and then the pandemic yeah. hit. 
hard. Yeah. And it was actually during that week of the whole pandemic kind of starting, kind of, you know, you know, running its gears where mm-hmm. Crystal Ang, who I knew uh, from, from, from being an intern, she had already gone to Netflix at the time. She had already been at Netflix uh, in the, in the yeah. recruiting department. And so she sent me emails saying, Hey, uh, this show inside job would like to uh, see if you're interested in, in, in a story revisionist position, if you want to take a test. Um, and I said, yeah, sure. And so it was, it was funny because then the next week, quarantine started and so basically the first thing i had to worry about not on top of the quarantine but having to worry about finishing this test this story test which took takes about a week to finish right. um, so i took that test and that was actually the first time i'd used storyboard pro because on boss baby i had used photoshop and one thing that the audience Whoa. should know Whoa. is that in tv animation storyboard pro which is a, a program from the company i think two boom two boom company uh, mm-hmm. That's the industry standard yeah. for storyboarding. That program, Storyboard Pro. But there are still some old school people, old school board artists on in TV animation who would prefer using store or using Photoshop for storyboarding. Um, and kind of going and, and going back to your question, like for me, it's just it's been not easy, but it's it's, it's been a lot easier than than, than for most people because some people may be out of the job for a couple months. Thankfully for me, I was able to seamlessly transition from one production to the next. But that was because I knew somebody and the timing was right. That's a big thing, too. For me, timing has been favoring me. It has been on my side for, for a while. And so in the end, like, all all the jobs starting from interning to production assistant, all that kind of stuff just kind of stemmed from knowing people, doing a good job. That's the point. Like, be nice, be on time, and do good work. That's a, that's a model that one of my illustration professors said. And I, that's something people should stick by. Mm-hmm. I think going back to like networking also like I guess networking is a scary term but it, basically it like when you <laughs> meet people and like you're saying just be genuine and be nice to them because kind of when you are networking um people are just thinking like do I want to see this person for like yeah. 6 8 hours a day <laughs> when we're working together and maybe it's not so much uh now that we are like all working remote but definitely mm. like when you're in an office and you have yeah. to communicate with a person you got to know that they are are kind of on the same page or that you can like feel comfortable like approaching them and saying like uh mm. you know I I need this kind of work or like are you reliable and stuff like that um and yeah, I think absolutely. that's really important because there's a lot of people out there who are very skilled but like getting those soft skills, man, m- making hey. sure that you are a, <laughs> you're a good person to work with. That's so important. Yeah. Uh, actually, I will say uh, on, you mentioning soft skills. Um, <laughs> one, one thing that my, um, my supervisor Mercedes on Kapu Panda, she said, is that she'd rather teach someone how to use the software or do the job than to teach someone how to have a good attitude. Mm-hmm. That really sticks out to me yeah. because that's true. So... I want to talk a little bit more about your work. So one of the cool things that you've done, you've done this cool storyboard project called Bandose in your uh-huh. free time. Uh, for our listeners, it's a short story about a guy at a party who meets a lady when they both uh, reach for the same concha. And like concha is like a, it's like Mexican sweetbread for yeah. those that might not know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he tries to work up the courage to talk to her. And, but the anxiety uh, comes in and he's like, uh, trying to he's playing all the worst case scenarios in his head yeah. but it's got a little romance got a little slice of life and uh yeah can you tell us a little bit more more about that and are these the kind of stories that you like to tell that's a good question so again like you guys know like i'm i'm, I'm primarily like a big action person like that's always been kind of like my influence like of course i love dragon ball z like incredibles all that kind of stuff 
Um, and like currently in my portfolio, I have like stuff that kind of relates more to like action. But for me, like I always enjoy also, I'm a big film buff. I love watching all kinds of films and I love films that really tap into something very honest and very true. And that's something that I hadn't really done with my stuff. And so I kind of wanted to, you know, be different and, and in my stuff and focus on something a lot more like, you know, true to life, you know, not, something that's not too action like something that doesn't really resemble like Western animation, you know what I mean? Like n- nothing too yeah. crazy, just stuff that resembles like r- real life. Um, and so, mm-hmm. and it was during this time when I really wanted to try to, you know, tell a story kind of resembling culture a little bit, not shoving it down your throats, but just being like, hey, listen, this guy, he bought sweet bread, you know? <laughs> and like trying to find the symbolism in that. Um, and also too, like I've always dealt with like the anxiety of like, you know, meeting girls and stuff like that, you know, that's always been a thing that, and especially like in big group gatherings too. And you're like, ah, you know, so a lot of it was just like, I was able to channel a story through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there I thought like, how can I tell this story in a different way? Of course, in the end, it's not going to be completely original, but like, what's something that I feel like would be exciting for me to do? So I thought, oh snap, every time I am always at a gathering, I always think of like, the worst case scenarios in my head like like a playback like i'm running back this 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 vhs of like if you talk to this person this is these are all the crazy things that are going to happen this is all the bad shit that's going to happen instead of instead of really thinking hey it, you don't know what's going to happen until you do it right like why are you why am i thinking of failing before i even do it and so that's something that uh i just wanted to tell i thought it was a really interesting story um and kind of having it be like 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 a romance but not having it be like too like too sappy and stuff like that it's just it's just someone just kind of going through life and just kind of going through these emotions in their head you know and then what's funny too is that like i didn't really like plan the whole story out like i like i kind of treated it as like a like a story driven show which for the audience it's like you get a premise and then you kind of actually you know work out like the dialogue and all that kind of stuff yourself rather than get a script because that's script driven and so I don't know why that approach worked for me. I was just kind of like what I felt, you know? A lot of what I did with that story was very emotional. It's like, how did I feel during that time, you know? How did I feel when I saw the girl that I liked at a job and, like, struggling with the anxiety of, like, this person, you know, I work with, you know, and, like, all that kind of stuff. Of, like, what if, you know, I cause a scene or, like, what if things get really awkward? So that, that kind of stemmed from, from that experience and it, it worked into this story. And then trying to find ways to make it funny in a way that kind of resembles my kind of humor, mm-hmm. which is, like, very gag-based, um, but also, like, very subtle, like, very subtle humor, like, very dry humor. And so that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, what, those were the components that really helped me tell the story that I wanted to tell. Uh, and then hopefully, yeah. hopefully I was able to, to bring that across. Um, yeah. And in this, in the stories that you tell, how often do you incorporate your culture? Does, or does your culture play, play any kind of role? That's a good question. I try to make sure that like, I don't force my culture down people's throats. Like I, I try to treat it as like, if my story benefits from tying in my culture into it, I'll do it. Otherwise, uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to force it on there. With Pan Dulce, it just kind of made sense, you know? Because it's, again, it's like, it's not overtly clear that, like, this this guy, you know, this has, like, a Mexican feel to it. But just with the Pan Dulce, it's just, like, a, the symbolism of what that bread means to the guy, you know? And to the girl. Mm-hmm. Um, as for, like, other stories, now I'm trying to really incorporate that. Just because what's funny is that before, I just kind of drew whatever I thought was cool. But then... I don't know. I just, for me, like, I resonated a lot with, like, the values of, of the culture, you know? There's good and bad yeah. stuff to any culture, of course. But for me, mm-hmm. it's like, I know I was born here. I wasn't born in Mexico. But 
hearing my parents talk about it and then actually visiting it. Like when I visited Mexico, I don't know, just something happened where I'm like, I got to tell these stories, you know? And also too, it's like, there's so much material that like, I feel very um, passionate about that. I got to tell people, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like about Aztec culture, Mayan culture, all these things that people don't really talk about, you know? And, and also like too, I, I wrote a zine, uh, 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 called um, Soldadegas, which is uh, women in the Mexican Revolution, and that kind of got the ball rolling a lot. It's like I love telling these stories. I'm not forcing That's myself awesome. to tell these stories because I'm, I'm Mexican American. I'm telling these stories because there's something there that ties into my love for story, like the hero's journey, um, you know, uh, conflict and stuff like that. And, and Mexico has been through a really storied history. Um, that I feel like there's so much to tell there and, and, and Ray too, like you, you, you've done like, you know, your story about like luchadors and that stuff's really dope because it's, it's just something <laughs> that you're passionate about, you know, you're not just writing it because, oh, we need Mexican stuff. You know what I mean? Where you're writing it because, mm-hmm. and telling it because it's something that means a lot to you. And that's something that a lot of people yeah. try to like, uh, you know, pin you with it's like, oh, you're just trying to like satisfy the demographic. I'm like, no, 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 I don't care about the demographic. I care about telling stories that matter to me. And with culture, it, it ties into it because there's something there that can benefit everybody. You know, something that may feel mm-hmm. uniquely Mexican or u- unique to the culture. That stuff in the end is universal. It's like take for example, Parasite, the movie Parasite. It's it's a South mm-hmm. Korean film. There's a lot of stuff that's very specific to the culture. But at the end of the day, like, it, it, it resonates with everybody, you know? Yeah. And so it's like... Um, Just like human conditions. and Exactly. Yeah. And like... Things that people can relate to. I also, like... Uh, sorry, not to, like, no, no, no. Uh, jump in on that. But um, <clears throat> I think that's really interesting what you say is like, oh, when I'm growing up... uh I just wanted to draw whatever was cool. Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. like still true, exactly. right? Like when you grow up, all you know is like whatever you watch on TV mm-hmm. and you're like, I'm going to draw Goku or whatever, uh-huh. right? Like that's cool. <laughs> but yeah. as you grow up and you grow older, like you get a more worldly view where like you exactly. take in things. And like, obviously you like went back uh, to Mexico mm-hmm. uh, with your family. And that is just something that you like took in and you were like this is really cool i want to tell this story so like yeah i don't think it is like pandering or any exactly. that kind of thing it's yeah. literally mm-hmm. we as artists just look at something we're like that's awesome yeah. like everybody should know about this i'm gonna make uh, a film i'm gonna make a comic i'm gonna make anything and like just get it out there exactly. because it is awesome and like we just want to share it exactly i appreciate you saying that yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also something that's just insane to me is that uh, you you did this on your free time outside of work, so yeah. I, that's actually something that plays really interesting right now in quarantine is finding that uh, that work life balance. Like how how do you personally find time to do your own personal stuff when if you're ever burnt out from just doing your day to day stuff? When I was in school, I just had this like instinctual thing of like being able to just manage my time well and just work on this stuff and just being locked in on what I wanted to do. And that was fine because, of course, that was what I was doing the whole time. But when it came to working in the industry um, as a production assistant, then I had to really like realize I have to dedicate my time to work and find extra time to work on my personal stuff. And that's what really hit me the most when I when I graduated from school was that I wasn't I was no longer dedicating my full time to just working on my own stuff. I was working on someone else's thing at uh, you know at, at an animation studio and kind of putting my personal stuff on the on the back burner. And then little by little, like I realized how important it was for me to do personal work because I was starting to feel very burnt out, but then also jaded mm-hmm. because 
you have people working in the industry for a while and like they express those kinds of sentiments too and it kind of rubs off on you and i'm the kind of person who kind of like takes in the vibe really you know really right. strongly but it's like accepting the fact that i need to find a way to complement what i do at work with what i do at home to give me a reason to keep going you know and give me a reason to be like this is why i'm doing this because i want to get better at my job but more importantly get better at the stuff that i want to do that i eventually want to sell at conventions or you know publish and stuff like that because at the end of the day the most important person you got to work for is yourself you know you mm-hmm. can work for a company and, and mm-hmm. be be a loyal company you know employee to the company but at the end of the day people come and go you know at a company whereas like yeah. you there's only one one you you know there's only one you're you're the only person there so for you you got to be able to fulfill that um, yeah, and so and self care, self care is part of your job. Absolutely, and before that, I would <laughs> you have to take care of you, or else you can't do work. <laughs> exactly. Um, w- once I got back from Midas, I started taking the train. That really helped me out, and I was really trying my best to like self care because that was the, really the key to be able to then balance out my work life and my personal my personal work. I saw a video. It's weird. This this is what did it. This is what really changed my life. Honestly, uh, it made me like be able to really hammer home like personal work. I was on YouTube and I always like watch artists videos like Tony Petoa is a really good one, Ethan Becker, like I watch all those guys that are really big on on YouTube in the animation community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Tonico posted a video on like how I'm productive like how, how I stay productive. And I'm like and I was it was during that time where I had like that really bad neck pain and everything. I'm like, I gotta watch this. And no lie, him just mentioning the Pomodoro technique like changed everything. Like, I don't know if you guys know Pomodoro Technique. Also, watch you guys should watch the video, too. It's amazing. Because um, he explains mm-hmm. different ways that he stays productive. But one that stood out to me was called the Pomodoro Technique, which is basically, um, there's this uh, website called Tomato Timer, tomato-timer.com. It basically, basically what the technique is that you work for 25 minutes, 25 minute chunks, uh, and then you take a five minute break and then you work another 25 minutes and then you take a five minute break and you do that four times and then you take a 10 minute break. And then once you're done, you go back and you just repeat that cycle. And I thought, okay, I mean, it's probably not going to work, whatever. But honestly, it changed, it changed everything. Like, and also on top of that, I got a new Cintiq. So like, I, like I'm able to work like, you know, standing up like this. So that, and on, and on top of that, watching Tonico's video, changed everything because i never really considered taking breaks you know i take like like a break after like four hours you know what i mean or when you feel tired you're like i'm sick of this but for for this technique to be like okay even if you want to keep going you have to take a break even if you work for 25 minutes i think that's definitely the hardest part about quarantine is that yeah uh, timing almost doesn't exist so you tend to like overwork yourself when you're just at home when you're at the studio when you're at the studio, you can ha- you have those impromptu social yes. uh, talks with an employee. You get up randomly, you go out for coffee. Exactly. So, and that's not really possible in quarantine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to kind of um, to kind of keep talking or to like uh, going back to you as a student, mm-hmm. how was your experience uh, attending uh, Cal State Fullerton for you and the program there? Really, the professors were really like the the key to making my experience really good. Um, the, all the professors were really awesome, um, especially the ones that I took later on in my years, like Cliff Cramp, who was, you know, at the time, uh, or formerly the head of the illustration department. Um, he was really the guy mm-hmm. that kind of, like, set the bar for, like, professors in general. Because before, like, my experience was pretty standard. I was taking my GE classes and, and stuff like that. But there are certain professors that I met. One professor my first year, um, 
uh, Christine Lee, who was like my you know beginning drawing professor, incredible. I feel like the professors really made the experience for me. Not so much on top of the program, it was really the teachers because I really try to like find teachers that are really authentic and really care about the students. Because I used to be a tutor mm-hmm. for high school students, and so that coming into that, like I really wanted to find teachers that or professors who really, um, really cared about the students and really dedicated their time to giving them the best uh, experience possible. Um, and also to like the friends that I made there, like I'm still friends with them now. Um, that's what really motivated me and really like made me want to like get better at my work. Cause at that time I was still struggling to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, but the, the professors with their guidance and their honesty, along with my, my friends who were really honest and just really like, they were like me. Like, I wish I ha- I wish I knew them back in high school. You know, I wish that they were my friends in high school because I wanted to talk about that kind of stuff, anime, you know, animation, all this stuff, like cartoons, all that kind of stuff. That's what really made my, my experience incredible. Um, and I really owe it to, to them, really the people. The institution is great too, mm-hmm. but the people who work for the institution, who are part of the community, they're the ones that really made my experience um, incredible. And shout out to my, my, my three best friends, uh, Nicole Lozano, Cassidy Fulsh, and Joel Zamudio. Um, we, we have a group chat called The Harry Wizards. Um, <laughs> and we we really bonded together like in our third or fourth year of college and like that really just propelled my 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 enthusiasm for for the school that's awesome i'm really glad that you had such a cool experience at kelsey fullerton i'm glad that yeah you already have the early beginnings of your careers as a story artist mm-hmm. and so upon that what do you see yourself doing in the future in this industry back then I thought like I want to be like a showrunner because I know that's like like everyone's like big goal to be a showrunner. But honestly, mm-hmm. just kind of seeing and I'm, I'm gonna be honest, like seeing how hard it is for a lot of showrunners to kind of like you know run the show. And I think when I heard oh get ready for sleepless nights, I'm like bro, I can't sacrifice sleep. Sleep is too good for me. Um, <laughs> and, and just like witnessing it, you know, and experiencing it, and just kind of taking it at face value. Be like, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Who knows? Maybe I might eat my words and, and be a showrunner. But that that was really the goal. But I think at this point right now, I think I'll be fine just reaching the status of a director, quite honestly. And then hopefully, you know, make my own personal stuff on the side and hopefully be able to, like, sell books. Kind of, like, do what a lot of, like, the artists we look up to do. Like, Nathan Falk sells mm-hmm. his books. Um, Max Ulichny sells his books and stuff like that. You know, right. Duke yeah. Road and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, I know Foundation Patreon does that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff really does interest me. So finally, what advice do you have for students that want to pursue a career in animation? That's a good... The uh, big thing, take care of your body. <laughs> That's like the biggest <laughs> piece of advice. In your youth, you, you can be immune to that kind of stuff, like punching over and, you know, working, you know, six hours at a time. But the big big thing is take care of yourself. Implement the Pomodoro technique that I mentioned. Um, take breaks constantly. Drink lots of water. This sounds so obvious, but trust me, like I didn't I I didn't see it that way before. But now I'm like, no, this is this is an essential thing. Also, too, and, and again, this isn't related to animation specifically, but sh- if you want longevity, like do that. Like under like ask yourself, how am I going to be able to handle animation or handle this career in a way where I can sustain myself? Be have, have a long career um, and stay healthy. Number two, ex- really exercise. Like, just prepare for the fact that you're going to be sitting down a lot at a desk, you know, for hours at a time, whatever. Um, 
really dedicate your time to like exercising, doing yoga, stretching, stuff like that. Uh, again, not related to animation, but super, super important because again, those those things that I'm implementing now have really benefited me in the long run. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, where can our listeners find you? And is there anything else you want to plug? Yeah, so I, you guys can find me on my Instagram. That's like my primary social media right now, um, at Miguel Baltazar underscore art. Uh, you guys can also find me on YouTube. Uh, I'm doing my best to like post the videos more consistently, but if you go on YouTube, uh, just type in Miguel Baltazar. Uh, it'll be the first one to come up, or Miguel Baltazar storyboarding. Um, you'll find you'll find me there, um, and that's pretty much it. I I deleted my Facebook. I deleted I deleted my Twitter. I've been trying to like not consume as much social media, but those are the yeah. Main clear two. out the social media. It can be really hard. Yeah, yeah. But that's the you, you guys can find me in those two. All right. Well, if you enjoyed our interview with Miguel today, please rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you tune in. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StraightAheadAP. And let us know your response to today's in-between questions. Or if you have any suggestions for future in-between questions, please contact us on social media or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for future guests, please tweet at us. We love discovering new artists and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier. Thanks again for listening. And thank you once again to our guest who has a bright future straight ahead. Until next week. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.